I'm Melissa Haverl. Welcome to the first episode of Recoding Relations, a podcast series on Indigenous new media and the politics and potentials of the digital humanities. Created by Autumn Schnell and me, this series captures some of the main themes and conversations of the 2018 Symposium for Indigenous New Media, which was held as part of this year's Digital Humanities Summer Institute at the University of Victoria on the unceded territories of the Wasanich, Lekwungen, and Esquimalt peoples. As members of CITR Radio's Indigenous Collective, who produce the show Unceded Airwaves, Autumn and I traveled to Victoria in June to attend and record the conference. We listened to scholars from over 20 institutions and three continents present research on diverse topics from Indigenous video games and virtual reality, to communications technology, digitizing archives, social media analytics, and language revitalization. The symposium was a gathering place for folks studying and working in Indigenous studies, new media, and the digital humanities to come together, share research, and discuss critical issues facing their fields. Autumn and I are excited to share some of those conversations with you here and to hold up the community building and digital innovation we saw at the conference. And we hope the series inspires more learning, dialogue, and relationships across the digital humanities and Indigenous studies. It's important for us to keep in mind that before we strike out with any digital humanities project, that the technology of the project itself is not going to be the thing that fixes all of the wrongs that colonialism still inflicts on Aboriginal people today. I think there's a fixation right now on developing language apps, you know, and breaking news, apps don't save languages. Speakers do. The relationships and the responsibilities are incredible. Settler colonialism is already premised of a non-consensual relationship. So we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard um, as researchers working in this community. The tech is only useful insofar as it holds up people. That was Sarah, Mark, Deanna, and David, a few of the voices you'll hear more from in today's show. During the symposium, several people discussed how digital technology alone won't achieve the goals of Indigenous communities or dismantle colonization. There was this feeling that it's not the technology itself that has the power to support Indigenous and decolonial futures, but that it's people and relationships that make digital innovation possible and that need to be nourished and supported. So in this episode, we'll talk about what being a good relation to Indigenous peoples and territories looks like in the digital humanities, and we'll explore research relationships and collaborations that work for and with the community. You'll hear Sarah Dupont present on her work with the Indigitization Project, where she supports Indigenous nations with digitizing their archival materials. And you'll hear Mark Turin present on language revitalization and new media, and his work building a HealthSook language Unicode system. We'll talk about the history of Western researchers exploiting Indigenous peoples, as well as some of the ongoing impacts of settler colonialism today, 
and we'll discuss what that all means for DH scholars and developers. Standards for appropriately engaging with communities still often fail to be met, so we'll also cover research ethics in this episode, and scholars David Gertner and Michael and Carolyn Runningwolf will offer a few guidelines for anyone seeking to work in Indigenous contexts. Then, we'll end with a story about how tech like virtual reality, when built out of strong relationships and ethics, can in turn spark new connections and understanding across people, place, and culture. To begin, we have Dr. Mark Turin, an anthropologist, linguist, radio presenter, and associate professor of anthropology and First Nations and Endangered Languages at the University of British Columbia. His current research focuses on the use of digital technologies in the preservation and renewal of Indigenous languages. Here's Mark at SINM 2018. Good morning. Uh, Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Dave and Jordan, for bringing us together here um, for this really valuable and timely symposium on these beautiful territories of the Lekwungen people, now the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations and the Saanich people, whose historical relationships with this land continues to this day. And I've been reflecting after yesterday on what I'd like to share with you in these few 15 minutes, and I thought that I would start with the symposium website, which reflects a rather conventional understanding of the digital above and the analog below. And I wonder whether we need to sort of disrupt that a little bit as well. In this era of digital humanities, what remains of the analog humanities? Um, My kids don't say when they go to get a camera, I'm going to go and get a digital camera now. They just get a camera. And I, I wonder whether we need to think a little bit what happens at the intersection and what use these terms are for us. And part of what I'm kind of thinking about is something that I disagree with quite a lot, uh, written by two colleagues whose work I admire a great deal, uh, Danny Miller and Heather Horst, who've written this book called Digital Anthropology. And their position is that humanity is not one iota more mediated by the rise of the digital. And I simply don't think that's true. And I think it's predicated on a very narrow and somewhat constraining reading of what the digital can do. So let's go back to the conference website and the typewriter again. And I I feel grateful to to Dave, who I think compiled the website, for giving me this kind of conceit uh, from which to draw uh, a few reflections about technology, particularly thinking about the power of localization, of adaptation, and innovation that's been happening in indigenous communities for as long as there are records to tell and document about, and is particularly important for language work. About four years ago, uh, Jerry Lawson, who spoke yesterday, and his sister Kim, and their wonderful father, and Himas hereditary chief, Chester Lawson, and Pam Brown, who's a curator um, at the UBC Museum of Anthropology, all Heltzuk community members and leaders in their own right, invited me to be part of a kind of listening tour and exploration to understand where the First Nations Languages program at UBC might be a useful partner to the work that's been going on in community around language and culture. And that led, in 2016, to the signing of a Memorandum of Understanding. And I'm going to read the text very carefully because we spent a lot of time finessing it. 
And this memorandum brings together the Heltzuk Culture and Education Center, the Bella Bella Community School, and the First Nations Languages Program at UBC, who have entered into a partnership to collaboratively create new opportunities for speaking, writing, and reading the Heltzuk language by expanding and deepening existing community language revitalization and cultural documentation efforts in a digital environment. So it's rather wordy, but it captures this sense of emerging partnership around common goal. So back to the typewriter again. I learned on my first trip to Bella Bella that in the early 80s, the band council sent away to Olivetti to ask for a specially modified set of typewriters that would have the Heltzuk orthography on them. Okay. I can't find any record of that, and I can't find any photos. So a bit of searching and sleuthing online, all I can find is localization for major languages like Arabic, world languages, um, that have also colonized other languages. But this idea of localizing typewriter keyboards is an early kind of indication of the power of community to find technology and to kind of bend it to where they needed to go. And the result of these localized typewriters were a set of documents produced um, by the Culture and Education Center in Bella Bella. And this is a good example. Uh, John Rath was the resident linguist invited in by the community to provide the first documentation of the language. So here you see examples of the keystrokes on the specially modified typewriter um, using characters that are simply not part of everyday Roman orthography. In the middle, late 80s, uh, when the first com computers were being used in the culture center and also in the school, um, they decided they wanted to move to use a font to be able to capture um, the Heltzuk language correctly. And um, the Heltzuk Tribal Council contracted the same organization that rather kind of ironically produces scripture in indigenous languages, the Summer Institute of Linguistics will be known to some of you. And they produced a Heltzuk font called Heltzuk Dulos, which you see here. But troublingly for some community members who had already started to type their language using typewriters, the glottalizations you see by the capital Q there, I've, I've zoomed in to make it really big, the glottalization comes before rather than on top. So standards emerge not because people necessarily want them, but because of the affordances and the constraints of the technology at the time. When Jerry and I um, went up together four years ago this year, we saw people struggling to type their own language. Um, the font only existed on a few computers. It was hard to install, very hard to type. And more to the point, if you didn't have it on your machine and somebody sent you a document with that font, it just wouldn't show up properly. It wasn't Unicode. So out of the partnership, it became really clear that some of the low-hanging fruit was to support the community to develop exactly what they needed, a Unicode keyboard input system to be able to mobilize and activate their language in ways on social media, but simply in digital technology. And within a very short period of time, uh, together with Aidan Pine and other um, students, scholars, and colleagues at UBC, we designed a Heltzuk Unicode input system for Mac and for PC. Uh, it sounds complex. In fact, it's terribly easy because there's lots of software out there for you to be able to do this. And what that allows is, and this is the power of Unicode, to express consistently across any platform um, every glyph in most 
world languages. Um, there's, they're constantly extending the Unicode character set. And the result of this was that within a very short period of time, people were able to use um, their language in the way they wanted to in digital spaces. At the same time, we realized there was a lot of material out there that had been produced in the non-Unicode font. And you could argue that these materials were thereby hard to mobilize and activate in a digital environment. So we built a series of little tools, classic kind of DHE tools, small stuff, that allow you to convert from the non-Unicode font into the Unicode font. You could either cut and paste, or you could upload a file and it would spit out a derivative for you. This kind of work is usually monodirectional, and when you've done all your documents, you can kind of retire the tool. It doesn't need to outlive its purpose. It's simply a, a little tool, a widget, that allows you to move uh, your text into a digital environment. Within about an hour and a half of us releasing the um, Heltzuk Unicode input system, one of uh, sort of Heltzuk's culture and language leaders in the community, Rory Hosty, um, started tweeting in Heltzuk for the first time. And he's been using Twitter in a really compelling and powerful way. Until this point, he was taking photos of the Heltzuk font on his computer and uploading GIFs to social media to show how to write. And now he could type. So he's giving Heltzuk lessons here. Sometimes um, he releases a tweet in Heltzuk with an English translation. And sometimes he doesn't. It's just Heltzuk, or the English follows a day and a half later. Um, Rory's getting really kind of powerful at doing this. I should also add that he's, uh, he started uploading little videos of him walking home and sort of messages for the day. Of course, Twitter isn't quite there yet. They think he's tweeting in Vietnamese. Um, if anybody has good relations with Twitter, I think there's at least one Jeff might um, please let them know uh, that this is not Vietnamese. Uh, but, but it's kind of interesting that, that Rory's creative uh, um, activation of Twitter is way ahead of what Twitter can pass in terms of its own metadata around the languages that are being used. Um, really, all of this is about relationships. And I think the relationships are key in this work. And that's why... Um, there's a lot of conversation around not only born digital in indigenous language work, but increasingly a concept that David Nathan coined, born archival. A great deal of the work that we do in partnership with communities goes straight from a community context into a living archive. So archives are being repositioned, not as the place where materials go at the end of their useful life, but where they are archived kind of almost automatically through the process of recording and documenting, and that archive becomes a place of conversation and relationality. I think that's quite a big transformation. And in all of that, of course, we as field workers and certainly partners from outside have a great deal of responsibility. So I'm going to wind up by talking about one thing that I think is really exciting in this new digital space where communities are transforming what um, maybe the mainstream thinks uh, technology can be. And this is really about the death of radio. Um, mainstream pundits have been predicting the death of radio for a very long time. Uh, I pulled a couple of choice examples here. New York Times, will the internet kill traditional car radio? Uh, our very own CBC, does the internet age mean the end for radio? And most charmingly of all, uh, this online discussion forum, radio was killed by TV, TV is killed by the internet. What is going to kill the internet? Um, 
I think the emergence and resurgence of radio, particularly community radio and particularly indigenous radio, is hugely exciting. There are many good examples. It's great to have our colleagues here from Unceded Airways today. But also um, think of Newhawk Radio. Think of the many different indigenous radio programs that are community-based, uh, FM or often uh, in contexts where the community is fragmented across time and space for reasons of education and healthcare, radio can be a really compelling way to mobilize language and culture. So Newhawk Radio is a non-commercial community radio station, and its focus is on maintaining language and healing and empowering our nations. I'd encourage you to check them out, and there's a lot of other great indigenous radio stations. And I think the power of indigenous radio and community-based radio is partly that it's asynchronous. Um, unlike other media and technologies that require complete focus, I've seen so many people listening to radio while doing something else, cleaning fish, working on the land, um, beading, whatever it may be. Radio is a great way to activate older recordings, traditional recordings, autobiographies, life histories, and let the those stories kind of suffuse into everyday space in ways that are low-cost, low-tech, and uh, I think hugely powerful. So to end, many years ago I was inspired when I met somebody who works at Nga Taonga, which is the New Zealand f uh, film and TV archive, and they have as their mission statement to collect, protect, and connect uh, Aotearoa's audiovisual heritage with the widest possible audience. I think what we're doing in this symposium, and many of us do in this work, relates to those three verbs as well. Communities are collecting their own cultural knowledge, their own languages and documentation. And then through partnerships such as indigitization and many others, there's this sense of protecting that incredible heritage. And it is through these new digital partnerships we're in a position to connect, to disseminate in ways that are ethically appropriate and also technologically innovative. With that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Turin for those words. The partnership he describes between the Heltzuk community and UBC's First Nations and Endangered Languages program, or FNEL, is a great example to start us off thinking about what effective, collaborative relationships with Indigenous communities can look like. In particular, I like that Dr. Turin shared the origin story of that partnership, how Heltzuk community members invited him into a discussion about how the FNEL program could potentially be a useful partner to them in their language work, and then how that partnership coalesced around a common goal, one that came from the community itself and not the academics or institutions it was working with. Only through that partnership and the agreements it entailed were students and scholars at UBC able to identify and support the community in developing the Unicode input system they really needed. For me, this project speaks to the power and necessity of good listening. What really struck me was how the partnership and understanding between Heltzuk and FNEL were what facilitated the development of the Unicode system. How the relationship here created the conditions necessary for digital innovation. Dr. Turin also made an important point about the living nature of archives. For him, archives aren't dusty repositories where materials get stored at the end of their lives, but they're places alive with conversation and relationality, a perspective I think our next presenter brings to life in her own way.
Sarah DuPont is the Aboriginal Engagement Librarian at the UBC Library and the Program Manager at Indigitization, a collaborative initiative that works to support Indigenous communities and organizations with the conservation, digitization, and management of community knowledge. Her presentation speaks to the immense labor involved in digitizing archives and keeping cultural heritage materials alive and the responsibilities that information professionals need to live up to when doing this work. I'll also pipe in a few times during the presentation to add some details from her slides. Here's Sarah presenting at the symposium. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Lekwungen and the Suimewith people on whose territory we are gathered today. I am really pleased and proud to be representing in digitization with my colleague Jerry Lawson and my friend Chuck. We know that there's no neutrality in information practices. So much power is in the hands of the archivist. Who decides what and how to accession, arrange, and describe materials? And central to this conversation, who is trusted to digitize it? Trust is a key reason why indigitization looks the way it does. Outsourcing tapes to a third-party vendor that a nation has no relationship with demands a lot of trust for those incredibly valuable recordings. It's questions like this that help paint a picture as to why there was a need for the work of the indigitization program to begin with. This program is a partnership with Indigenous communities that offers a pathway to start doing this work on the terms of the nations. They invest up to $10,000, the grant gives up to $10,000, and we work together to offer a pathway forward in doing this work that includes practical approaches to equipment, training, and demystification of this work. Indigenous communities have been stewarding their cultural knowledge with little to no support from colonial organizations or the information professions, for that matter, uh, for decades. Resilience, despite this disru persistent disruption of colonial forces, is a testament to the strength of Indigenous communities subjected to centuries of assaults on life, language, rights, and culture. Thanks to those uh, who are no longer with us, many Aboriginal groups do have cultural heritage materials locked away for when they're ready to start accessing them. Known by many of us as precious fragments, um, and this was a, a term coined by Sapitza, or Shirley Sterling, um, who was a residential school survivor interviewed by Jerry's brilliant sister, Kim. She came up with this term, precious fragments, to talk about really important pieces that people have kept uh, alive, um, that combined with the work and the knowledge of elders who are still with us today, are able to piece together some of these stories. Piecing this work together, it's really hard, and unlocking the fragments from their containers of analog media is a role where the information professions can contribute, uh, but only if done appropriately. So I mentioned that this work must be done appropriately, and a lot of people ask me, what does that mean? What does that really mean? And um, there's a lot of academics and scholars publishing um, their thoughts on this matter, um, but my favorite person talking about this right now is our colleague and friend Melissa Adams, who's the research manager at the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Recently, she put out this Twitter thread of questions to consider if you want to work with Indigenous people, preferably before you start asking them to work together. So if you're looking for some thoughts and ideas of how to get started, uh, folks, this is it. She starts off by asking, who are you? What do you want to do and why do you want to do it? It's a fairly lengthy thread and a good one. 
The thread Sarah just suggested by Melissa Adams is from October 2017, and it's still available on Twitter under the handle at Mel Giscast. That's M-E-L-G-I-S-K-A-A-S-T. So thinking back to the cultural fragments locked away in obsolete analog media formats, we know that Indigenous cultural heritage work often operates on contingent funding. This results in a persistent pattern of startup and collapse. For Aboriginal communities to develop both technical and financial capacity under this, these circumstances is challenging, especially when the outputs are increasingly important for communities to undertake their own research into revitalizing their cultural practices and their language. One thing that persists with the Indigitization grant is that folks have big goals. We know this. And especially right now, those goals are centered around language revitalization work. From the get-go, when people hear about our grant, they see words audio cassette digitization and expect that other activities such as collections work, transcription, translation, and digitization of other formats can be included. This is where we need to see more advocacy done to make these activities fundable. Even digitization is more than just digitization. It's a third planning, a third the digitization time of the transfer, and another third doing quality control, metadata, description, and storage, making copies for your community, etc. There are many invisible processes and costs to collections work that too often fail to be captured during the planning stages or written into research grants, where this work can sometimes be tacked on as an almost afterthought. Our profession, being the information professions, libraries, archivists, we need to do a better job of providing tools to help others scope out this work appropriately. If grant applications are built as project planning tools, then this might help. So nations are faced with the really tough job of finding the practical balance point between archival activities and access that's needed for community members right now. With limited resources, communities are pressed to make these materials available so that people can work with the content to further their activities. These activities can include mapping, language restoration efforts, and fighting for rights and title to the land. Thinking about fighting for rights and title to the land is something that I've been spending some time on lately. And I think this is a really good time to introduce one of the mechanisms of colonialism that makes so much of this work um, for nations who occupy or have access to traditional use claims um, that Canada wants a piece of. So this slide, I've shared this information from Chief Roland Wilson of West Moberly First Nations. Um, he put this slide together to share with people the volume of referrals that his community has to deal with on an annual basis. The slide Sarah shared here from Chief Wilson showed that his nation responds to 3,500 to 6,500 referrals annually, handles 10 to 20 environmental assessments, and sends 15,000 to 35,000 documents and 40,000 emails a year. That breaks down to anywhere up to 180 emails and 145 documents a day. So the, for those of you who are not familiar with the word referral, and I apologize for those of you who are intimately uh, familiar with this word, this word is a generic term used by the Crown, aka Canada, a First Nation or both, when re referencing a potential statutory or policy decision that may adversely affect or impact the Aboriginal or treaty rights of a First Nation. The Crown then sends referrals to First Nations on an annual basis, the subject matter and quantity of which is dependent on the land, water, and natural resources within the respective territory of each nation. These consultation requests from oil and gas, wind energy, hydro, 
forestry, mining, land dispositions, I could go on, are often connected to each other. So for example, if you have a company that wants to be putting in a pipeline and there are bits and pieces that need to happen, like roads, the referral for the road will come separate from the referral for the pipeline. And it's your job to figure out and remember that these things are happening and connected to each other and put them together. So just in case this wasn't clear, all the numbers on this screen, um, for each of these, it requires reviewing, uh, sorting out what belongs where, and actually responding. And this is the work that nations are having to do to keep well sites from ending up on their land, to keep pipelines from crossing their territory. So imagine every day you had to decide between what referrals get ignored in order to save a valley where your ancestors are buried and where your nation still holds sweats and culture camps. What are you having to let go of so that you can spend every ounce of capacity to save the valley? It's not that digitization isn't seen as important, but it's not something that comes with its own line item in the annual allocation of the meager operational funding from the federal government. You have to find the capacity from within what you already have. So in this case, shared by Chief Rowland's community, the number of staff dealing with this amount of content in an annual basis is three staff members. And there's nowhere to refer the referrals. So think about it, when you go to work every day, you don't worry about whether or not your emails are going to be working, whether or not the emails that you've sent have been sent, the ones that you're supposed to get, you've got, because you have someone in an IT department to call about that. IT departments are not guaranteed to be found in especially some of the more remote First Nations, so the nearest city with a telecommunications company that you have a small contract with might be able to send somebody out this week, or you might not be able to get that dealt with this week. It's very expensive as well. These are things that academics need to keep in mind when wondering why an email wasn't answered or why the community asked you to write the grant application that you've suggested for them um, rather than say, okay, we'll get on that. Uh, as a colleague in UBC's anthropology department recently advised me, while it might not be within the scope of my job description as the Aboriginal engagement librarian uh, for the library to write grants on behalf of communities, they're asking me, and it's literally because there's nobody else able to do that. So in that instance, if you've started a relationship with a nation, you have to consider your own capacities and how the community will see you as someone who might be able to actually help them get that grant. This is a really big responsibility. The digital project that you have in your mind's eye at the very moment of its conception might have very different shapes and a very different ending from the moment that you started thinking about it once you start going along the road. The project or grant or whatever uh, is going to cost the nation something. Maybe it's an oil well, maybe it's a gas plant on their land, or a pipeline, or a fish habitat. So it has to be worth it. It has to strategically leverage something that will have dividends that will pay off in the future. To start bringing my part of the conversation to a close, it's important for us to keep in mind that before we strike out with any digital humanities project, that the technology of the project itself is not going to be the thing that fixes all of the wrongs that colonialism still inflicts on Aboriginal people today. And while digitization can't do some things, nations are keenly aware of what it can do, which is why, in many instances, they're able to find a way to make it a priority, to fill out our grant form or someone else's to try and tackle this work. Digitization can allow an added dimension of human experience to learning, and it's well worth doing and doing well 
just keep in mind that whatever well looks like should be defined by the First Nation you're working with, not you or your administration or your profession. Finally, colonial organizations have historically worked against Indigenous control of Indigenous information, and the more processes that we impose on the technical or the information side of things, the more barriers there are to achieving the work of actually getting to the knowledge that needs to be accessed. How, when, and why communities digitize and preserve media is something indigitization wants to support in the most practical way possible. Thank you to Sarah for that presentation. The most powerful message here for me was just the insane volume and intensity of colonial demands on the time and energy of Indigenous communities. The numbers she shared from Chief Wilson of West Moberly First Nation really threw that into sharp relief. And it's something academics clearly don't appreciate enough when working with community. I'm grateful to Sarah for communicating the types of material challenges nations are constantly up against. She sheds light on the circumstances they're likely navigating while doing archival digitization or other digital projects, and as a result, why it is that communities might ask certain things of researchers or other collaborators. Her presentation got me thinking about the huge gap in understanding and lived experience between academics and Indigenous communities that often permeates this work. Cultural coordinator of Cowichan Tribes and former Indigitization participant Chuck Seymour, I think, said it best. We are the most studied people, but the least understood. Why are we not understood? You don't speak our language. That statement really resonated with folks at the symposium. It lit up the SINM 2018 hashtag, and it was one of the most widely tweeted quotes of the conference. So why is it that Indigenous peoples are the most studied, but the least understood? There's a long colonial history there, some of which Sarah touched on in her talk. And for those who aren't familiar yet find themselves doing research in Indigenous contexts, it's a history that needs to be learned and appreciated. Linda Tahiwa Smith's book, Decolonizing Methodologies, is a great place to start. In the introduction, Smith writes, From the vantage point of the colonized, the term research is inextricably linked to European imperialism and colonialism. She says, The ways in which scientific research is implicated in the worst excesses of colonialism remains a powerful remembered history for many of the world's colonized peoples. It is a history that still offends the deepest sense of our humanity. Just knowing that someone measured our faculties by filling the skulls of our ancestors with millet seeds and compared the amount of millet seed to our capacity for mental thought offends our sense of who and what we are. It galls us, she writes, that Western researchers and intellectuals can assume to know all that is possible to know of us on the basis of their brief encounters with some of us. It appalls us that the West can desire, extract, and claim ownership of our ways of knowing, our imagery, the things we create and produce, and then simultaneously reject the people who created and developed those ideas and deny them opportunities to be creators of their own cultures and nations. It angers us when practices linked to the last century and the centuries before that are still used to deny the validity of Indigenous peoples' claim to existence, to land and territories, to the right of self-determination, and to the survival of our languages and cultural knowledge. The living history of dehumanization, exploitation, and appropriation of Western research that Smith discusses is a reality that the DH community and academic researchers in general need to recognize and resist. 
Researchers also have to understand that settler colonialism still inflicts trauma on indigenous peoples today, and that the violence of both our historical and our present context extends critical responsibilities for how we engage with communities and individuals. During her presentation on the People in the Text project, Cree Métis scholar Deanna Rader shared a powerful but painful story that exemplifies this point. I wanted to talk about the Indigenous protocols and just take a minute on that because it is the relationships and the responsibilities are incredible. And so I'll give you just one example. Um, Alex Shield and I had the opportunity to meet Maria Campbell um, a year ago. And I have often wanted to find the missing pages that were edited out of her book, Halfbreed, and took that occasion to ask um, Maria Campbell if anything was available. And she believed everything had been destroyed. She actually had thrown out herself the original handwritten copy. And so we went, um, I, we asked her permission, and I, we knew that Alex was going to the McClellan and Stewart archives in that following fall. And so with her permission, Alex proceeded and went to look and amazingly on a typescript found a passage that had been excised by the publishers about um, the rape of Maria Campbell at the age of 14 by the RCMP. Now this was a find for which she had often wanted. This is something that delighted her, the, the actual finding of it. But when, we, and with her permission, and only with her permission and consent, did we then distribute it. It was published thanks to Laura Moss's amazing work with Canadian literature, as well as then hitting social media. But of course, this is a tremendously difficult moment in um, someone's life. And so I think caused a lot of personal, you know, anguish for um, Ms. Campbell herself, even as we continue to do our best to support her. And so I, I guess this notion of somehow following, you know, all of the uh, rules, I suppose, of being a good relative and being as responsible as possible, you cannot evade the pain of, well, of colonization in general and genocide, um, and in this specific case, you know, of, of, of personal abuse. And so I, I just leave you on that, that point that really we have to think of these practices as constantly evolving as we try to deal ethically and intuitively with the pain of the results of our work. That story speaks to the trauma Indigenous people, and particularly Indigenous women, often carry with them and continue to face in our society. And I think it demonstrates the weight of the obligations researchers have to not only center consent in all stages of their work, but to always engage thoughtfully and with care and respect. Conference organizer David Gertner had a lot to add on that point, and he offers five suggested practices for engaging community. Here's David during his keynote to the symposium. I thought... Um, I would share some suggestions for those of you who I know are interested in including Indigenous perspectives in your research and also to start conversations with those of you who are already doing this work. So I really, again, I see this as, as a, a beginning of a conversation and a way to build on the, the conversations that people are already having in places like the Race, Race DH course um, in the anti-colonial workshop that was happening this morning. So these are just five points. So the first one, and this is one that I was really taking from Deanna Rader's talk, 
that she gave at the, the Indigenous Literary Studies Association Conference at Congress in Regina this year. And this is being a good relation. So being a good relation means building meaningful relationships with community and individuals. Um, and that requires time and emotional labor. Um, but we need to find ways um, to be recognized by our department heads, by our administrations, by our granting agencies. These relationships do not necessarily fit wholesale into the structures we have right now. And that's a change that we need to make. Being a good relation also means reaching out. It means being in touch. It means giving people the opportunity to comment on drafts and final reports, even when that prospect is terrifying, um, which it often is. Partly because you realize it could kibosh a project. And when you have a grant or you have a tenure clock, that can be a scary thing. But this is part, again, of thinking, rethinking um, those relationships. Being a good relationship also means people over tools. It means letting go of a project sometimes, uh, and it often means rethinking your research schedule, um, no matter how mind-blowing and useful the tool you have designed might be. Um, consent. We need to do better at consent. Settler colonialism is already premised off a non-consensual relationship. So we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard um, as researchers working in this community. All too often, and this is amplified, this has been amplified in the post-TRC mo moment here in Canada, um, Indigenous buy-in is an afterthought. It's a box to be checked after the project has been completed or is near completion. So being accountable to the community or the person that you are working with means that you are checking in throughout the project. And that also means that a yes at the beginning um, is not a yes at the middle, nor is it a yes at the end. People change their ideas about projects um, and checking in and, and understanding that just because you've got a buy-in at the beginning doesn't mean that you can move forward with that project all the way through. Um, number three, take data sovereignty seriously. The first place I recommend you go is the First Nations Information Government Center. If you are not familiar with OCAP, Ownership, Control, Access, and Permission, you need to start there. Understand what OCAP is, understand why it is there, um, and how it is being mobilized by Indigenous communities. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to work with community, realize that their rules of data stewardship may be different from your fields um, or from your institutions. And while it may be legal for you to use data in a specific way, recognize that your university has been complicit in the theft of Indigenous knowledge since the onset of colonization, and do better. Hold yourself to a higher standard and familiarize yourself with the guidelines that are already available. This is something else. You do not need to rewrite the wheel. Um, trust in the labor that has been done by places like the First Nations Information Governance Center. Rely on the information that is done and respect the labor that has already gone into making these things possible. Um, number four, include indigenous thinkers and programmers on your syllabi. If you are teaching an intro to DH course, um, if you are teaching a seminar on digital humanities or critical technology studies, not only is there a ton of awesome stuff out there that you and your students will benefit from studying, um, but I would go so far as to say that doing so is a political act. Settler colonialism works by simplifying indigeneity and relegating it to the past. Indigenous new media holds up indigenous presence and indigenous futures, and it pushes back against the simplification. Um, and educating your students, your colleagues, in that way is a big part of the process. Decolonizing technology also means being accountable to the ways in which tech contributed and contributes to colonial violence. If you are unfamiliar with that, you should read Marissa Duarte's amazing book. 
um, network sovereignty, which talks specifically about the ways in which things like telephone lines um, were complicit in the displacement of indigenous people, and how telegraphs um, were a way of monitoring, surveilling indigenous peoples as well. So being accountable to the way that tech contributes to colonial violence, and you also need to make space for indigenous peoples to share their work and reframe the goals and objectives of technology. Finally, um, make safe spaces for indigenous students. Adam Godry recently gave a talk in Winnipeg about how, in this post-TRC moment, while universities are indigenizing, um, they are doing very little towards decolonizing, um, which is to say that while our departments are scrambling to make indigenous hires and to recruit indigenous students, the colonial infrastructure of the university is going largely unchanged. Supporting indigenous students means advocating for tenure stream indigenous positions and cluster hires. Um, but it also means making safe spaces, URL and IRL, available for Indigenous students to share their ideas and to support one another. We also need to remember that if you are asking students to engage in open access platforms, remember that Indigenous peoples, and particularly Indigenous women, Indigenous queer and non-binary folk, are much more likely to be subject to online racism, violence, and hate. Think about alternative spaces to mobilize indigenous voice where students can work together and that they have a system of support in place. Building on David's suggestions, augmented and virtual reality developers Carolyn and Michael Runningwolf also offered guidance on how to work with indigenous communities. So if you were here yesterday for Dave Gertner's uh, keynote, he mentioned all of this in a really great way. Basically, the way to, to work with indigenous communities and not exploit them is to, you know, work with, <laughs> build relationships with these communities, be respectful. You know, reciprocity is also very important as in what is it that we can give back and how can we give back and being very aware of the representation too that we're creating for these people in maybe our Standing Rock VR app, And that, that means, like, holistically. This is, we go from food, so this deer sacrificed himself for us, and we treat it with respect. You have to uh, treat them and dress them in the field correctly. You give a little prayer, give offering, and then you butcher them. Carolyn and Michael suggested six R's for non-exploitative data collection and research with Indigenous communities. Most were mentioned in the clip, but for the record, the six R's are respect, relevance, responsibility, reciprocity, relationality, and representation. So far in this episode, we've been talking about the necessity of relationship. About relationships as the building blocks that form the foundation of good projects and that facilitate digital innovation. But another story Michael and Carolyn shared during their talk also speaks to how digital technology, when built out of strong relationships, in turn has the power to spark connections between people and places and across distance, language, and culture. Carolyn of the Crow Nation and Michael of the Northern Cheyenne Nation are from what is currently called Montana. And in 2016, they traveled to neighboring North Dakota to join thousands of indigenous and allied people gathered at Osetisakowin, the Standing Rock protest camp, where they created a VR app. Here's Carolyn locating us in those territories. So at the very top left, light blue corner, that's uh, where Bozeman is. 
and Bozeman Springs coming out of the mountains flow into the Missouri headwaters, which then combine to the Missouri and into Mississippi. And a little bit further downriver from Bozeman, along the Missouri, was a gathering you might have heard about. So mostly what people did hear, if they heard something about the protest camps or water protector camps at Standing Rock, what they heard was about the militarized police, about the barriers, the the clashes at the bridge. And yes, all of that was happening. But what was important for us is that that wasn't really the core of what it was about. And um, so we actually, while we were there, we were uh, we were connecting with family and community, and and it was a camp of prayer. It was a, a camp of very close knit community feel, and and people from all over came together to support this cause, and they were taken in as part of this family. So kind of out of that experience, we we created a short app demo. Which they later took to a conference in Hawaii, where they were able to share it with someone in a pretty special moment. So so this is a Siberian grandmother who was brought to the ICLDC conference, um, conference on language documentation and conservation in Hawaii. It was her first time traveling outside of Siberia. And uh, Michael showed her our Standing Rock VR app. And she, she was just so happy. And she was, uh, we were trying to get her to look at the, the horses at the river. But she decided to go and look at the victory song when then President Obama announced that they were going to stop the pipeline efforts for a moment. And everybody broke out into victory songs. And she was just so happy. She did not want to continue on to the next. <laughs> To the next presentation, she just wanted to. She, did, she didn't sing speak a lick of English. Didn't speak any North American or anything, any native language outside of her home country. And yet she got it. She understood the power of this event that we had captured through technology and transported. So I think that's the power of this technology. We take a video from this alien place, definitely to you guys in this lush environment. Montana or North North Dakota, and show that to someone from Siberia in Hawaii, <laughs> and she transported her, and she just got it emotionally what was going on, this event of joy. And we do actually have a headset, so if you're interested, uh, we'll, later on, we'll demo break. it. Yeah. I love this story because I think it brings us full circle in terms of the interplay between relationships and digital creation. I like how the VR app came to life through the Running Wolf's experience of being part of the community at Standing Rock. How they built something rooted in the people and relationships of that place, and then were able to take it to a radically different context where it could be experienced by someone otherwise totally disconnected from the protest. The immersive VR technology could then work its own magic, allowing a woman from the other side of the world, with no understanding of the language being spoken, to relate in a very intimate and emotional way to the people at Standing Rock and their political struggle. What have you seen in your short, long life? What has your heart overcome? 
The traditional ways that I hid in a way can be revived by the beat of a drum. The Running Wolf's work is one example of the many ways that Indigenous scholars and developers are already building relationships and fostering understanding through digital technology. But as Marissa Duarte writes in Network Sovereignty, the technology can take us only as far as we can see. There's still a lot of work to be done within the digital humanities and the academy in terms of improving relations with the Indigenous community and decolonizing research practices. We need to recognize the link between research and colonialism and push back against that legacy in the ways we do our work. The stories and suggestions shared by the voices in today's show are gifts we can all learn from and apply in different ways, and I hope they're helpful to those of you interested or already working with Indigenous peoples. What have you seen in your short, long life? What did those tiny hands do? Those tiny hands Stretching, do? scraping, fixing and making Mending the skins that our souls fit within Stitching, nothing can undo This episode was written and produced by me on Ebigwit, the ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. Thank you to Sarah and Mark for their presentations and to all the other voices featured in today's show. Recoding Relations is a collaborative series co-produced by Autumn Schnell, David Gertner, and me. Thank you to Madeline Taylor at CITR Radio for all her support with the planning, production, and editing of this series. The intro track for the series is Snakes and Ladders by Cree cellist Chris Dirksen from her album The Cusp. The song you're hearing now is Tiny Hands by Inuit and Anishinaabe Métis duo Quantum Tangle. Other music featured in this episode was by Ketza and Lee Rosevier. Big thanks to everyone who participated in the 2018 Symposium for Indigenous New Media, and particularly organizers David Gertner and Jordan Abel. Thank you to our partners, the Digital Humanities Summer Institute at the University of Victoria, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, First Nations and Indigenous Studies at the University of British Columbia, First Nations Studies at Simon Fraser University, Indigitization, CITR Radio, and Unseated Airwaves. To learn more about the symposium, visit indigenousnewmedia.wordpress.com or search the Twitter hashtag SINM2018. I'm Melissa Habrell, and this was episode one of Recoding Relations. Recoding Relations.